1: Reverse Rad is back and better, and it's sniffing at Afghanistan. Lockbit wants $50 million from Accenture. When employees leave, do they take your data with them? Unpatched Apex One instances are under active attack. Print Nightmare continues to resist patching. Google bans SafeGraph. Apple explains what's up with iCloud privacy. Caleb Barlow wonders if ransomware payments are financing criminal infrastructure in Russia. Our guest is Oliver Rochford from Securonix on the notion of cyberwar and the synac ransomware gang rebrands. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, August thirteenth, twenty twenty-one. Newman's Black Lotus Labs report that Reverse RAT, which is, as its name implies, a remote-access Trojan, is out in an evolved version that has added functionality such as taking remote photos via webcams and retrieving files on USB devices inserted into the compromised machines. ReverseRat 2.0 is believed to be operated by a threat actor in Pakistan, and its principal targets have been government and energy organizations in South Asia, especially Afghanistan, but with a smaller number of other attacks observed in India, Iran, and Jordan. The ongoing turmoil in Pakistan's neighbor suggests an obvious reason for making collection against Afghanistan a priority. The present campaign appears to have begun on June 28th. Reverse Rat 2.0 is currently accompanied by a more evasive version of the Prebot HTA loader, designed in particular to avoid detection by Kaspersky and Quick Heal Security Products. Lotus Labs has also identified another agent, Night Fury, that replaced the Alicor rat previously used in tandem with earlier versions of Reverse Rat. The infection mechanism has usually been a phishing email, baited with a PDF file that misrepresents itself as the agenda for a United Nations meeting on organized crime. Cyble has found communications from Lockbit in which the gang claims to have taken more than 6 terabytes of data from Accenture, and in which they demand $50 million in ransom. Lockbit also claims they obtained access from a rogue insider who's still employed by the company. While Seibel notes that Lockbit has been advertising for corrupt insiders willing to betray their organization's trust, the firm thinks that in this case the gang's claims are unlikely to be true. Accenture hasn't issued any significant statements about the incident beyond its early reports of having contained it with minimal damage. Lockbit has indeed followed through with its threat to release some of the stolen data, but, as Security Week observes, the material released so far, at least, does not appear particularly sensitive. Code 42's analysis of security trends in the first half of 2021 finds that insider risks are surging during what the firm calls the Great Resignation, employee churn the current seller's labor market is generating. So, people are leaving their place of employment. So what? Well, according to Code 42, here's what. When they leave, the company information often leaves with them. This trend in the labor market is reinforced by two other trends, increased data portability and more widespread remote work. Anonymized telemetry from 700,000 endpoints running Code 42 tools in the first half of 2021 have shown a strong correlation between data exposure and employee departure. Code 42 notes two other trends that suggest a greater insider risk, more exposure of source code and more data incidents involving removable media like USB drives. Both of these suggest that people within organizations are the source of the exposure. Correlation with employee turnover is unlikely to be a matter of mere accident. So think about offboarding and take some time to help people understand that proprietary material isn't necessarily their property. Trend Micro says that it's seen signs of threat actors attempting to exploit two vulnerabilities in the company's Apex One security products. Trend Micro addressed the flaws with patches issued on July 28. The company has said, quote, Trend Micro has observed an active attempt of exploitation against two of these vulnerabilities in the wild in a very limited number of instances. And we have been in contact with these customers already. All customers are strongly encouraged to update to the latest versions as soon as possible. The Windows vulnerability known as Print Nightmare is proving surprisingly resistant to the fixes that have been applied. Microsoft released a warning at midweek after this month's Patch Tuesday, which addressed this family of vulnerabilities, saying that a remote code execution vulnerability exists when the Windows Print Spooler service improperly performs privileged file operations. An attacker who successfully exploited this vulnerability could run arbitrary code with system privileges. An attacker could then install programs, view, change, or delete data, or create new accounts with full user rights. There's no new patch yet, although Redmond is working on it. Microsoft says that the workaround for this vulnerability is stopping and disabling the print spooler service. And, of course, since the perfect can often be the enemy of the good, users should also apply the fix Microsoft published this Tuesday and not wait for a complete solution to Print Nightmare. Microsoft, we point out in full disclosure, is a CyberWire sponsor. Two privacy stories of interest come out of Silicon Valley, We'll take Mountain View first and then move on over to Cupertino. Google has banned SafeGraph, a data location firm, from its ecosystem, which means that developers must remove any of SafeGraph's code from their apps if they wish to continue to distribute their software in Google Store. The move is part of the company's larger effort against location data collection firms that seek to get app developers to include data harvesting code the better to collect information for sale to companies and governments. As Vice reports, quote, SafeGraph collected at least some of its location data by having app developers embed the company's code or software development kit into their own apps. Those apps would then track the physical location of their users, which SafeGraph would repackage and then sell to other parties. Google confirmed to Motherboard it told app developers in early June, they had seven days to remove SafeGraph's SDK from their apps. If they didn't do this, Google told Motherboard the apps may face enforcement. This can mean removal from the Play Store itself. End quote. And over in Cupertino, Apple continues its attempts to explain why its recent child protection measures don't amount to an abandonment of the company's commitment to privacy. So, they suggest out Cupertino way, that what we have here is a failure to communicate. In a Wall Street Journal exclusive this morning by reporters Joanna Stern and Tim Higgins, Apple's senior vice president of software engineering, Craig Federighi, explained how the company intended to preserve privacy while enforcing measures against child exploitation. Part of the confusion, Federighi attributed to the essential simultaneous announcement of two distinct tools— One of them identifies known—and the emphasis should firmly be on known—explicit images of children uploaded to the iCloud storage service. The other tool gives parents more powerful ways of keeping tabs on the images their children share through text messages. The simultaneous launch probably led many to conflate the two and to envision them as amounting to a single infusion of privacy-threatening functionality into the Apple ecosystem. Federighi told the journal, quote, It's really clear a lot of messages got jumbled pretty badly in terms of how things were understood. We wish that this would have come out a little more clearly for everyone because we feel very positive and strongly about what we're doing, End quote. Federighi says the new tools don't amount to a digital panopticon. He said people's iCloud storage isn't going to be continuously monitored and rummaged for whatever content Apple might find objectionable. Instead, Apple will be notified when a certain threshold is reached in terms of the number of images uploaded, and only then will it look. The images are specifically identified and appear in a database of known child exploitation pictures. The ultimate guarantor of privacy for the new system, Apple says, will be the multiple levels of audit the company has put in place. So it's not a backdoor and doesn't involve
0: intrusion into a user's device. I think in no way is this a backdoor. I don't, I don't understand. I, I, I really don't understand that characterization. Imagine, imagine someone was scanning images in the cloud. Well, who knows what's being scanned for? In our case, the database is shipped on device. People can see, and it's a single image across all countries. We ship the same software in China with the same database as we ship in America, as we ship in Europe. If someone were to come to Apple, Apple would say no. But let's say you aren't confident. You don't want to You don't want to just rely on Apple saying no. You want to be sure that Apple couldn't get away with it if we said yes. Well, that was the bar we set for ourselves in releasing this kind of system. There are multiple levels of auditability, and so we're making sure that you don't have to trust any one entity or even any one country uh, as far as how uh, these images are, are, uh, what images are part of this process.
1: And of course, go to the Wall Street Journal to read and listen to the whole thing. And finally, there's been another transition in the ransomware subsector of the criminal marketplace. The record reports that the gang formerly known as SYNAC has released decryption keys for ransomware it used between July 2017 and the early part of this year. It's not, however, a sign that the SYNAC operators have grown a conscience. They've simply rebranded as e are retiring their old code, and are moving on to new ransomware-as-a-service products they hope will enable them to gain a healthy share of the C2C market. Although SYNAC is one of the older ransomware gangs out there, they've badly lagged several of their younger competitors. Like that gang formerly known as Evil you may have seen in the news lately. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use there's active discussion in cybersecurity over the appropriate use of terms like cyber war and cyber weapons. When and under what circumstances, if any, these are the right words to use. And if not, then what are better options? Joining me to help unpack this is Oliver Rochford, Senior Director and Security Subject Matter Expert at Securonics.
2: So I, I think there are two definitions of that term, right? There's a, an international legal definition, which belongs to the realm of, of policy and actual warfare, which we're definitely not not hitting. If you look at the, the, the kind of the um, statement that was given out today by the UK, uh, the US, the EU, they were very careful to call it systematic cyber sabotage. And that's because how can you have a cyber war without an actual war? You know, there's been no war declaration. And more importantly, this whole issue is being confused just pure and simply by the fact that, um, uh, of course, there's this mix between civilian and between essentially what's military, government and public infrastructure. And so that's confusing the issue for sure. But if we think in terms of describing offensive actions within the realm of cyber, I think it's, it's an apt term. It's one which we can use.
1: And where do you suppose things are headed? what do you suppose, uh, I don't know, is, is it possible to imagine a, a future state of equilibrium here?
2: So the, the future state, the, or the solution to this, it's not going to be technological. In reality, almost every nation state is a glass cannon. We can successfully attack, we can't successfully defend. The attack surface is is mixed civilian and government, and so we can't even defend it sufficiently. Barring some kind of light um, yeah, you know, forward jump in, in terms of AI, which I'll be honest, I don't see coming right now. We're improving iteratively. The solution is going to be based on, on agreements. And that is purely and simply because there's a lot at stake here. Right now, it's just a little bit of competitiveness. But going forward, it's about whether we're going to have the same going forward the next 50 years as we've had the last 50 years, where we have been very open about sharing innovation and technology. And I believe that's that's the biggest um, thing at stake here that if we don't agree on solving this outside of the technological sphere, everyone is going to go back into a mode of protectionism and and not sharing their IP.
1: Is there an area here that has you particularly concerned? Is, Is there any area that you feel isn't getting the proper attention it deserves?
2: So right now, I think that our attempts to deal with this are unevenly distributed the weakest link is going to uh, essentially jeopardize everybody. So I'd like to see us share more of these approaches, definitely uh, in Europe uh, with the US, uh, I would say worldwide, in terms of how we can avoid confrontation. I don't think anyone can win in the long term out of that. This is something where once we stop sharing all of the information, especially if we want AI to work where it's about huge amounts of data sharing. Going it alone is probably not going to be a valid way, even for a giant like China. I think one thing which, which is very important to, to keep in mind with this entire thing around cyber war is that it's very visible. So what I mean by that is we're reporting on it. There are a whole lot of parties who are, uh, only have partial information. So I think there's a lot of misinformation in this. I think there's also a lot of um, exaggeration in terms of what can actually happen. At the same time, the true impact of this, I'm not sure if it's being reported on well. We're always looking at these anecdotes and incidents of things which have happened. You know, we're looking at at, at Iran, Israel, because, well, that's about the only hot cyber war we have in the moment. We had Ukraine, Russia, which I think would qualify to a certain degree. But we're always trying to look in the rearview mirror. This is not how it's going to work. Right now, there's this cat-and-mouse game going on of people building up arsenals, of all parties building up arsenals, all of them laying backdoors, all of them laying logic bombs. And there is no cyber war independent of kinetic war. The truth is that we're going to see the first cyber war in the first couple of minutes in the next big kinetic war. And it's just going to be a part of the whole, but it's going to be very decisive. I think that if you can disable the infrastructure of your opponent, you don't need to throw a bomb or shoot a single shot. It's done, isn't it?
1: That's Oliver Rochford from Securonix. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear the full interview, head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for interview selects, where you'll get access to this and many more extended interviews. visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour that's vanta.com slash cyber and i'm pleased to be joined once again by Caleb Barlow. He is the CEO at Synergistech. Uh, Caleb, we are seeing, I would say it's fair to say, a ramping up of ransomware payments. Uh, we I had, hadn't noticed, Dave, really? <laughs> we had JBS, uh, I think it was $11 million. Colonial Pipeline, uh, legend has it was $5 million. What happens on the other side of this? When, when that money is being um, invested on the other side, uh, what's your take on that?
3: Well, you know, Dave, I, I had one of those moments where I was thinking about silly things, and I'm like, what could you do with that kind of money in Moscow? Hmm. And, you know, this wasn't some in-depth research, but I got to tell you, it's pretty interesting. So, you know, take take the case of uh, Colonial Pipeline, right? So the Justice Department got $2.3 million back. Thought is that was probably, you know, came back from one of the affiliate payments is at least the kind of prevailing idea is probably the case. But what hmm. can you do with a few million dollars in Moscow? Well, I don't know about you, Dave, but if you're kind of a uh, a, a cool bad guy, like the first thing I'm going to do if I get that kind of haul is buy a car, right? So, yep. yeah. you know, a, a Lamborghini, <laughs> if you want the Lambo, Dave, and I think I think you would look good in a Lambo with the top down. Yeah, about I can't a not disagree with you there. Okay, about a quarter million US if you're more of a Porsche guy that's more of a $100,000 US. Sure, and in, sure. But in some cases, interestingly enough, the prices for these new cars are actually cheaper than here in the US. Now- hmm. The second thing we need to do, Dave, we got to throw a party, right? I mean, I'm thinking
1: <laughs> booze, a drugs. Part. A blowout, blowout you party. You know, <laughs> men, women, whatever you're
3: into. Yeah. You know, let, yeah, let's yeah. say that runs, I mean, let's say it's another 100K, right? I mean, we need a blowout okay. party, right? So right, we right. bought the house. Oh, well, we need a house now, right? I mean, where are we going to throw the party? I don't know about you, but I'm not going to rent a place. We need, a, no, we need no. a fun house. So let's just buy the darn thing. And luxury homes in Moscow, Aren't actually all that expensive. I think we need a place with a pool. What do you think? Yeah, oh,
1: of course. You can't okay, throw a so party that's, that's a another pool. quarter
3: mil. So um, we bought the car, the house, the party. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. But you know, let's get back to business, Dave. We we yeah. You know, I mean, this is a business, right? Um right. We can have some fun, but we need more developers and engineers for the next attack. So mm. let's say we spent the two fifty on cars because we got you the Lambo. Another 250 yep. on a fun house, 100k on our party. Well, that's only 600k. So in the case of JBS, we had 11 million in total. Well, <laughs> about half of that goes to the affiliate. We kind of know that, right? So we got we got to pay off the people that helped us get there.
1: Sure, um, fair is fair.
3: Fair is fair. So let's just say to use round numbers, that leaves us with a cool five mil off of this to put okay. in engineers, development needs, future attacks, office space, whatever. Well, you can get a software engineer in Moscow for under twenty thousand U.S. dollars a year, but hmm. I don't know about you, Dave, but I'm not hiring average people.
1: Like, well, you got to spend money to make money, right, Caleb? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's and yeah, you know yeah. we
3: want to. I don't. We want a fun culture, right? So let's just assume we're going to pay him double that. We're going to pay okay. forty thousand U.S. a year, so double Office the full of
1: Aeron rate. chairs. Oh, got to have and um, And yeah.
3: <laughs> uh, we didn't include that in the budget. We may need to add that. We need foosball, some you know, snacks, yeah. foosball. So sure. that $5 million funds a team of 125 developers for an entire year. Wow. One that's attack. That's a lot of foosball. That's a lot of foosball. So the point here, Dave, is when you pay a ransom of that size, and I'm not picking on anybody that's paid a ransom before, but yeah. this is the problem. When you pay a ransom of that size— you are literally the series B round venture capitalist for the next attack that's targeting the entire sector, right? You are literally the venture capitalist for the bad guys when you pay a ransom of that size.
1: Okay, so that's the reality. Uh, does that put you on either side of the equation when it comes to paying or not? I mean, it's, it's a tough tough thing to figure out, right? Well, it is a tough thing to figure out. And historically-
3: we've been deferring this risk to cyber insurance and you know, we've all gotten drunk on cyber insurance, right? I mean, that market took mm. off like crazy. You and I have talked actually pretty recently about how cyber insurance is tightening up and you know, they're trying not to pay in some cases, the treasury department stepping in and actually blocking some of those payments by sanctioning uh, ransomware operators. So unfortunately that risk is now coming back on us. And, and I think the real thing that we've got to think about as a society is maybe we need to change the economics for the bad guys and just stop paying the ransoms. It's going to be Hmm. painful, particularly the first round time we do it. But if we stop paying the ransom, we stop the venture capital. You can't hire the 125 developers, buy the Lambo, buy the fun house, or throw the party. All of a sudden,
1: it's not cool anymore. And why do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, there'll be good deals to be had on slightly used Lambos, right?
3: There will. And (laughs) how cool would that be? (laughs) It would be. I mean, I can see the used car operator. I can see the used car dealer in Moscow after we banned ransomware payments. Oh, well, you know, these are all, these are a great deal. These are all former ransomware operators. We can get you a great deal on a used Lambo.
1: I think it was uh, Alan Liska from Recorded Future who made the point that if you want to try to track some of these folks down, track the, the, the purchases of exotic cars, that there's, there's, there's more than a, a dotted line between those two things. So I, I think Absolutely. you're onto something. Yeah. Absolutely.
3: So look, I mean, here's the, here's the point. This is a little fun, but the point yeah. here is, in all seriousness, what do you think you're funding when you pay a ransom of that size? And is there a better way and maybe the better way is just to change the answer for everybody
1: and change the economics for the bad guys. All right, food for thought. Caleb Barlow, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Don't forget to check out this weekend's episode of Research Saturday in my conversation with Lee Christensen and Will Schroeder from SpecterOps. We're discussing their research on abusing Active Directory certificate services. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester. Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Carrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpe, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.